0: In the early hours of November 22nd, 1987, viewers in the Chicago area were in for a surprise. Combine regular folks watching the news, a signal hijacking, a creepy ass rubber mask, a bizarre and confusing monologue, and an unsolved mystery. And you have the ingredients for today's episode of Capers and Cocktails. Welcome to Capers and Cocktails, a true crime podcast that doesn't take itself too seriously and gives you something to enjoy while you listen. The following content may be disturbing to some. Discretion is advised. If you're enjoying one of our themed cocktails, ensure you're of legal drinking age, and have fun, but drink responsibly. The Chicago cocktail is a classic cocktail that originated in the Windy City during the Prohibition era. It is a variation of the classic gin sour cocktail, which typically consists of gin, lemon juice, and sugar. The Chicago cocktail became popular during the 1920s and 1930s in speakeasies and bars throughout Chicago, where it was served as a refreshing and easy-to-make drink that could be easily masked as non-alcoholic if necessary. Perfect for our purposes on capers and cocktails, for sure. Another tale of Prohibition bringing us delicious mixed drinks, man. Thanks, Prohibition. Anyway, despite its humble beginnings, the Chicago cocktail has stood the test of time and remains a classic cocktail enjoyed by many to this day. Our version of the Chicago cocktail includes one part brandy, half a part lemon juice, one quarter part triple sec, and one quarter part cherry liqueur, which we will stir in our shaker. The cherry liqueur is so good, by the way, and makes a mean spiked cherry limeade. We'll have to do that on an episode soon. Anyway, after stirring, we will strain over fresh ice into a glass rimmed with fine sugar. The mocktail version takes one part unsweetened apple juice, half a part lemon juice, a quarter part orange juice, and a quarter part cherry juice, poured into your shaker with ice and stirred. Then strain over fresh ice into that sugar-rimmed glass and enjoy. Now before we begin, I think we have to talk a little bit about who Max Headroom was, especially if you're, I don't know, under the age of 50. I personally had never heard of Max Headroom before I learned about this incident, but evidently he is considered somewhat of a cult icon of the 1980s. Max Headroom was a fictional character and a computer-generated, sort of, TV personality who first appeared in the 1980s in England. He was a real person, an actor named Matt Feuer, evidently playing a computer-generated character. That's confusing, but anyway. He was created as a part of a British television series called Max Headroom 20 Minutes into the Future. Max Hedram was shown as a snarky, stuttering personality who was meant to be a satire of the media industry. His futuristic clothing, sunglasses, and a faltering accent gave him a distinct appearance, and he was always shown as a talking head on TV screens. In fact, the character had nothing below the shoulders. He was a literal talking head. Max was known to give commentary on various topics and interview guests. The character became popular in the United States after the TV movie Max Headroom 20 Minutes into the Future aired in 1985. He later appeared in his own talk show, The Max Headroom Show, and various commercials and music videos. Max Headroom's slick-backed hair, sunglasses, and outfit gave him a unique look that could be readily replicated for Halloween. The character of Max Headroom was so well-liked in the 1980s that a commercial market developed to supply fans with Max Headroom costumes and accessories, aka you. Yes, you can get your very own Max Headroom mask. Max Headroom was even the spokesperson for New Coke in 1985. That particular advertising campaign was notable for its use of computer-generated imagery and futuristic themes, very much like what was seen in Max Headroom's shows. However, Max Headroom and New Coke wouldn't last. Max Headroom's show was cancelled in 1988, and his popularity began to wane in the early 1990s, as the novelty of computer-generated characters began to wear off, and he gradually disappeared from the public eye. By the mid-90s, Max Headroom had largely lost his mainstream popularity. Back to November of 1987, though, and a television industry that looked vastly different than it does today. Most American homes in 1987 got their TV broadcast through an antenna or cable. When compared to today, the number of available channels was far less, and many of them went dark at night. In 1987, TV broadcasts relied on analog technology, which involved sending signals as a series of electrical impulses across the air. This resulted in less clear and reliable audio and video compared to modern digital transmission. In 1987, television programming also followed a strict schedule, with viewers glued to their sets at certain hours to see their favorite shows. The only way to record shows for later viewing was using a VCR, as on-demand services were not yet available. A VCR would cost you a hefty $250, or a cool $650 in today's money, so it's fair to say that the average American had one shot to see the shows they loved. Broadcasting on television in 1987 was in general more constrained and regimented than it is today. The Max Headroom incident on Sunday, November 22, 1987 disrupted two separate television shows that night. The first occurrence was broadcast on the WGN-TV Chicago Evening Newscast at 9.14pm to be exact. During the 9 o'clock news's sports section, the first intrusion broke into the signal. Pre-recorded footage of a person wearing a Max Headroom mask and sunglasses was shown to viewers at home. There was a revolving corrugated metal panel behind his head. Like, it's believed that someone was literally there just spinning the metal piece around by hand behind Max Headroom's head. This was 1987. This metal piece resembled the geometric backdrop effect from the genuine Max Headroom and was accompanied by a staticky and garbled buzzing sound as the individual rocked erratically. Before the transmission was cut off, the hijacker made a short muddled message that was literally impossible to figure out. After around 25 seconds, WGN engineers switched the frequency of the channel, connecting the studio to the station's transmitter atop the John Hancock building, thereby ending the incursion. WGN sports anchor Dan Rowan returned to the airways and quipped that the computer powering the news had taken off and gone crazy, saying, quote, Now if you're wondering what's happened, so am I, end quote. Dan continued his report, which had been stopped by the interruption, on the day's Chicago Bears game. Later that same night, during the 11 o'clock p.m. broadcast of an episode of Doctor Who on the local Chicago-based PBS station, WTTW-TV, the Max Headroom hijacker struck again. Okay, so some of you probably know that I offer live shows either virtually or in person in the central Texas area. That's not a plug, but I do, anyway. Anyway, as a part of this, I have a catalog of all my episodes and they're divided into three parts, PG, PG PG-13, and R. I have to say that even though this is clearly a PG caper, after watching the incident on YouTube, I really thought about categorizing it as, a, as R. It's that creepy, I'm telling you. If you haven't seen it or didn't happen to be watching Doctor Who on the PBS station in Chicago on that Sunday night, 1987, you can find it on YouTube or you can not. I personally can't unsee it, even in my nightmares. Take that information as you will. At 11.20 p.m., the hijacker appeared for a longer period of time, delivering a bizarre and rambling monologue that included references to Max Headroom, television shows, and other pop culture phenomena. And so that you don't have to watch it, I'll just go ahead and describe the 90-second intrusion in all its glory. Important note, this was also a pre-recorded video. It wasn't being performed live, so to speak. The masked figure made a remark about nerds called WGN sportscaster Chuck Sworski, a frickin' liberal, and then he held up a can of Pepsi and said, Catch the Wave, that slogan from the New Coke ad campaign featuring Max Headroom. Next, he held up a middle finger inside what appeared to be a hollowed-out, well, marital aid, if you know what I mean. That's what all the news articles called it then, and I love it. Max hummed the opening theme to the 1959 cartoon series Clutch Cargo and exclaimed, "I still see the X," while singing the lyrics, "Your love is fading." This was a reference to the last episode of that show, which sometimes misheard as "I stole CBS." After a crude video edit, old Max moved mostly off-screen to the left with his partially exposed buttocks visible from the side, while a female figure wearing a French maid costume wrung her hands. He also pretended to defecate, complaining of his piles, and explained that he had made a giant masterpiece for all the greatest world newspaper nerds. WGN's call letters stand for World's Greatest Newspaper. While Max Headroom screamed, oh no, they're coming to get me. Ooh, make it stop. The female figure began whipping Max with a fly swatter. On the Anyway, the vision then faded briefly into static, and after a total interruption of around 90 seconds, viewers were unceremoniously returned to the Doctor Who broadcast as quickly as they'd been teleported away from it. Anders Yocum, vice president for corporate communications at Channel 11, would say, quote, by the time our people began looking into what was going on, it was over, end quote. So why was he on for so long, or at least that much longer than the first newscast interruption? Well, this was at night, and at the time, there were no engineers on duty at the then Sears Tower, where WTTW's broadcast tower was located. This left the station's technicians helpless to prevent the signal takeover. Paul Rizzo, the station's air director, would say that, quote, As the content got weirder, we got increasingly worried about our incapacity to do anything about it, end quote. In the days following the signal intrusion, the incident was a well-covered and widely speculated upon event. Many individuals saw coverage of the intrusion on television and were horrified and confused about what they saw. The strange and unnerving film starring the man in the Max Headroom mask caused some viewers to be scared or upset, while others found it funny or enjoyable. Many were also curious about the incident's unanswered questions and who might have been to blame. At least one was simply furious that her episode of Doctor Who had been interrupted. And knowing the pain of missing out on 90 seconds of a television show that you probably loved for what you thought was going to be the rest of your life for a bare-bummed man with a flyswatter probably would have made me just as upset as that lady was. Many in the media, naturally, speculated on the hijackers' identity and motivations. There were theories that it was a hoax, a political statement, or an act of terrorism. Some speculated that the whole thing was really a publicity trick by the TV station, or an attempt to boost ratings for the Max Headroom show. They were being a bunch of talking heads themselves, it seems. Anyway, after the event, the FCC began looking into how the culprit had gained access to WGN TV's and WTTW's signals. The agency dispatched a squad of engineers to the broadcast locations to check the gear for tampering and security holes. The FBI launched its own investigation into the situation as well. Any illegal conduct connected to the intrusion, like hacking or unauthorized access to computer systems, was to be investigated by the agency. The Chicago Police Department and the Federal Communications Commission both helped with the investigation. FCC Deputy Director of Public Affairs Maureen Perretino said at the time, quote, We consider this a significant concern." Both the Chicago PD and the Cook County Sheriff's Office conducted their own investigations into what happened and assisted the FCC and the FBI as needed. A reward was, naturally, offered for information leading to the identification and apprehension of the person or people responsible for the incident. The criminal penalty for video piracy in the United States at the time was up to $10,000 in fines, and actually some sources say up to $100,000 in fines and up to one year in prison. The reward was initially set at $1,000 by the television station WTTW, one of the ones who was hijacked, the the Doctor Who folks. The reward was later increased to $10,000 by WTTW and several other organizations, including the FCC and the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper. In the aftermath of the intrusion, the television stations involved in the incident were flooded with calls from concerned viewers who wanted to know what had happened and whether it was a legitimate broadcast or a hoax the incident also sparked a broader conversation about the vulnerability of broadcast signals and the need for better security measures to prevent similar incidents in the future anders yokum would say quote we've spent most of today figuring out what we can do to prevent this sort of thing in the future and we believe we will be able to avoid it end quote and it turns out they did so how did a person or group of people manage to be one of the first and only to hijack a television signal in this way In 1987, this was quite a feat, but before American TV stations switched to digital transmissions in 2009, it was possible to invade broadcasts by providing a stronger microwave transmission to the station's broadcast towers than the stations were sending themselves. According to experts, this stunt required a high level of technical expertise and a substantial amount of transmitting power, and the pirate broadcast likely originated from a location within sight eyesight, of the broadcast towers of both stations, which were located atop separate tall buildings in downtown Chicago. The hijacker would have been required to coordinate the hijack's timing and content with the broadcast schedule in order to successfully divert a television signal. For this to have been possible, it would have been necessary to have knowledge of and access to broadcast schedules. And they had to have a flair for the risky. There was a high probability that the person who hijacked the TV signal would have been caught and punished for his or her criminal actions. Fines, jail time, and legal action, all possible outcomes. This was not the only incident of signal intrusion in the 1980s. A signal jammer in October 1985 broadcast sexually inappropriate comments over the air during the popular Wally Phillips show on WGN AM radio. In April 1986, a pirate going by the name Captain Midnight successfully intercepted the satellite transmission of Home Box Office, aka HBO, and broadcast a message criticizing the company for scrambling its signal to prevent non subscribers from receiving it on privately owned satellite dishes. This incident became the most famous case of video piracy until the Max Headroom incident in 1987. John McDougall, a satellite dish salesperson from Ocala, Florida, was ultimately revealed to be Captain Midnight and received a $5,000 fine and one year of probation. Despite the reward offer and the efforts of law enforcement agencies and investigative teams, however, the perpetrator of the Max Headroom broadcast intrusion was never identified or apprehended, and the case remains unsolved to this day. No suspects were even ever officially identified, and no one was arrested. One popular theory holds that Max was a member of the Chicago underground hacking community, while another holds that the prank was perpetrated by a disgruntled WGN employee, or former employee. Could have been. Who knows? What is known is that the incident remains one of the most intriguing and puzzling broadcast intrusions in broadcast history. The Max Headroom character embodies the cutting edge of 1980s media and technology and reflected our enduring interest in how digital media shapes our sense of who we are as individuals. The Max Headroom broadcast intrusion continues to captivate and perplex people as one of the most discussed mysteries in television history because of the unanswered concerns it raises about media, technology, and individuality. Life imitates art imitates life imitates art, I suppose. And the five-year statute of limitations on the crime has long since passed, so if the mass avenger, criminal, person were to come forward at this point, they could do so with no fear of repercussions. Seems like it's been long enough that they probably never will. Something tells me that they prefer the weirdness and mystery of it all, but who knows? Thanks for hanging out with me. I had dreams once of being a television or internet pirate, but I'm just not smart enough I don't think. I also don't think you should watch the Max Headroom incident on YouTube, unless you too want to see him in your nightmares. Next week's drink is a simple one, and you should try making it with me if you haven't yet. It only needs three ingredients, and it's sure to be a sipping success. The ingredients for the following week's drink are always listed in the description box. Speaking of the description box, I do also list my sources for the episodes in the box where possible. This could be good if you want to check me or if you need to do your own research for some reason. Just so you know I'm not making all this stuff up. (laughs) I'll see you next week and remember there are always alternatives to committing the most badass crime of the 1980s and then not telling anyone you did it. Come on!